Hi, I'm Dr. Janice Morrow. Thanks for joining us for another episode of American Mood Swings, where we talk about the brain and all things related to mental health. Welcome. And we're here today with uh, Andy Impartado from the Disability Rights California, which is the largest advocacy group here in California for those with disabilities. He has a 26-year history disability rights advocacy work. He uh, is a California native who studied at Stanford, who studied, I believe, humanities at Stanford University and went on to Yale Law School and studied public interest and graduated in 1990. And then you're with an emphasis with an emphasis on, on disability rights policy work. Yeah, well, let me let me just because I'm a Virgo. Okay. Uh, my last name is pronounced Imperato. Imperato. So it, oh, I'm it sorry. Rhymes, it rhymes with Desperado. Imperato. I said it wrong. I'm sorry. It's okay. And I went to Yale undergrad and Stanford Law School. You had oh. me going to Stanford undergrad and Yale Law School. But okay. That, it sounded great. Okay. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Um, I have, uh, yeah, that you um, you had your, your first major depressive episode in your last year of law school. Correct. Got a diagnosis of bipolar, and uh, that kind of propelled you into a, a lifetime of advocacy for those with disabilities. Um, you've been married to your high school sweetheart, excuse me, your college sweetheart, Betsy Nix, for the last, since college, grad school, and you have two grown sons. Yes. And you uh, currently live in Sacramento. Uh, but today, what we want to talk about is um, CARES Court Law, SB 1338, that was signed a couple months ago by Gavin Newsom uh, with the intention of helping those that are homeless with mental disabilities. And it compels them into the something called the CARE Courts. So immediately, like the very next day, I saw a blurb from the ACLU that they were gonna file a lawsuit, that it violated all kinds of civil liberties and and all the human rights groups. So then I started reaching out to people like yourself. So that's how this introduction came about. And I would just love to hear now from Andy um, to talk about the DRC, its its mission, and and a little, just a, a little bit about, because most people have never heard of Disability Rights California. Sure, so um, Disability Rights California is a, federally funded legal services organization that serves people with all types of disabilities, all ages across the state of California. So we're a $44 million organization, about 40% of our funding is federal, about 40% is state government contracts, about 20% comes from the state bar. And the state bar money is to provide free legal services to low income population. You know, we're kind of unusual for a legal services organization in terms of our size. We have 26 offices across California. There aren't a lot of legal services organizations that try to serve a state as large as ours. Um, we do a lot of policy work. So one of the things we can do with our state bar money is we can work with the state legislature to try to you know, have policies that will improve the lives of low-income populations that the state bar cares about. Um, we also do federal advocacy and my background before I took this job two and a half years ago was all federal. I, I worked in DC for 26 years, as you mentioned, and including five years working for Senator Tom Harkin, who was the chair of the US Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor and Pensions. So even though I grew up in California, I'm kind of learning the California process in this job. Um, 
So yeah, so you know, basically Disability Rights California is trying to advance the vision of laws like the Americans with Disabilities Act. We want people with disabilities to have the same opportunities, the same choices, the same self-determination that other people take for granted. We're a legal services organization, so we represent people in court. We do individual cases and systemic cases. But we also like working alongside disability leaders to do systems change and advocacy work in the state legislature. So in the context of care court, you know, we started out working with the state legislature and the and the executive branch of the state government. And now we're shifting now that the law has been signed by the governor into a litigation strategy. Well, let's let's delve in. Thank you for explaining uh, Disability Rights California, because I, I was so thrilled to hear about this organization. I never have. I did want to mention, if I if I'm correct, that you uh, were appointed the executive director. On, on the timing couldn't have been crazier. It was just a month before COVID started, so there was so. Yeah, much- I started I started the job on February third of 2020, and on March third, we went virtual. I feel like leaders don't. There's an expression that. Mm-hmm. Leaders don't grow in comfortable spaces, so mm-hmm. I'm sure it was good for my own leadership trajectory to have this experience. So let's just kind of, if you could talk about what the CARES Court does, and if you could just kind of outline this law. Sure. So I'll describe it the way that I think the governor and the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Mark Galley, the, the way that they thought about it, and then I can describe, you know, some of the the concerns. So the concept was that there was a discrete population of people in California who have schizophrenia or psychosis who would benefit from coming under the jurisdiction of a civil court and having a civil court um, order the county that they live in to prioritize them for services uh, possibly to provide prioritize them for housing so that they could get on a path to recovery. That's the concept. It's a discrete population, seven to 12,000 people. It's a civil court system, not a criminal system. And Secretary Galley likes to think of it as upstream interventions. He feels like the people in this category are likely to end up in the criminal justice system. They're likely to be conserved or to have their rights taken away they're likely to be homeless um, or unhoused. So if we can get to them earlier and get them on a care plan that's overseen by a court that has power to order resources to be spent for them, that their lives may get on a better path and they may avoid bad outcomes. We're worried how it's going to work in practice. First of all, identifying the seven to 12,000 people that have schizophrenia or psychosis is not a simple thing to do. There are lots of people who could be experiencing a reaction to a drug or any number of things going on in their life that may make them appear to be psychotic or to have schizophrenia. Black people are much more likely to get diagnosed with schizophrenia improperly. uh, And black people are also more likely to be traumatized by being forced to go to a court in order to get into a recovery path. Um, so that, you know, in the early meetings that we had with, with Secretary Galley, we said to him, the governor is trying to do this in every county 
in the state. The original proposal was all 58 counties. We said, why don't you just do it in a couple of counties and see if your concept works? And if you're going to test this civil court system in a couple of counties, are you willing to test another system that doesn't rely on the courts, but just prioritizes this population for services and housing? If you can give them attractive voluntary services and housing, you may not need a court system. This is not a population the state or the counties have decided should be at the front of the line for housing or the front of the line for services. So if you want them to be at the front of the line, let's test that out without forcing them to go through a court system, which for a lot of people can be traumatizing. So that was kind of the frustration that we had throughout the process. These are individuals who have not been accused of committing any crime. Their only crime is that they have psychosis or somebody thinks they have psychosis or schizophrenia and they're being hauled into a court system the people that can haul them into the court system include their family members who can petition the court, first responders who can petition the court, their neighbors. We think it's a recipe for people that are trying to remove homeless people from the streets who they find oh. obnoxious. Uh, and oh. we think that this is just you know a new tool to remove a loud, unhappy homeless person from the street. And we have no confidence that the civil court system is going to sort out the people who really are the right targets of care court from any number of other people who are going to get swept up into the system. And if it's not seven to 12,000 people, but it's more like hundreds of thousands of people, we're just not confident that the service delivery system across the state is going to be ready to serve them well. Your agency was working with them and uh, and consulted. So did they just disregard all these concerns? I mean, it's hard to know who the they is, right? Oh, okay. I mean, okay. you, you, had, you had Governor Newsom, who was personally very invested in this from the very beginning. I was at the press conference where he announced it in San Jose, very invested. He had an ecosystem of people that he was working with, including the mayor of San Diego, including the mayor of Oakland, uh, including the mayor of San Francisco. And it felt to me like this was big city mayors who were similar to Gavin Newsom when he was the mayor of San Francisco, who wanted a new tool to deal with a homeless population that they were having a hard time dealing with. And they came up with this system without any input from people with lived experience and without any input from really experts in mental health policy. I would say when it got to the state legislature, um, it seemed like really the governor was the one that had to sign off on any change. There were there were senators and assembly members who played a leadership role in introducing the bill and shepherding it through the process, but they didn't seem to be particularly empowered to make any compromises. One of the issues that you know we were concerned about was involuntary treatment, forcing somebody to take medications that they don't want to take. Secretary Galley said that if there was any involuntary treatment under care court, it would be time limited. That concept was you give somebody the right antipsychotic medications for a limited period of time, then they can get insight into whether that's helping them or not. And when they have that insight, they can decide for themselves if they want to keep taking the medication. Uh, Senator Umberg, who was the lead, one of the lead senators in the state Senate, 
said that under no circumstances would any of it ever be involuntary. Um, and if you listen to uh, Governor Newsom, he certainly seemed to think that involuntary treatment was part of the plan. So there wasn't consistency across the champions for the bill, how much of this might be, should be, would be involuntary. And I think that's something that's still gonna get worked out as it gets implemented. As it went through the process, they decided instead of implementing it in all 57 counties at one or all 58 counties at once, they would start with six and then they would expand it after a year. The bill that was signed by the governor was opposed by Disability Rights California and pretty much every major disability rights organization, civil rights, civil liberties organization in California, with the exception of NAMI. It sounds well-meaning, like I, and noble that they were attempting, and but misguided. And if they're not listening to the input from people in the trenches and not trying it out first. So, so what happens? You mentioned it can be a family member. It could be like a, an emergency response person. That is okay. So now they're in the system. Are they like locked in a facility for six months? Are they on the street still and they're supposed think, to go up I to I think court? the concept is they have a court date and it'll be interesting how that court date actually gets implemented. Um, but they have, they have an interaction with a civil court system which orders them into a treatment plan or a care plan. And that can be a one-year uh, plan. And if they fail out of that plan for any reason, they could end up conserved on the other side that they, because they tried the plan and it didn't work, the next step for them is to, to get a, a conservatorship where they lose a lot of their rights as an adult. You know, how that actually plays out in each county in California is going to depend a lot on what the county is willing to invest to make that system work. If, if you look at the data in terms of, for people that are already unhoused, and certainly a number of these folks will already be unhoused, what seems to work well for them is very uh, kind, humane people having multiple points of contact with them over a sustained period of time where they build up some trust and then they're more likely to listen to them if they suggest that it's a good idea to sign up for this service or take advantage of this housing opportunity or whatever might be available. But in the care court con concept, it doesn't seem like there's going to be a lot of time for that. So depending on how quickly somebody gets held into court, we're worried that that can traumatize them and not set them up well on a path to recovery. We believe that people that tend to do the best over the long run are people that choose for themselves to engage in mental health services and put their lives back together. Well, yeah, I'd like to know, um, yeah, how do people that are homeless with mental health issues, how do they even know, okay, so now they're supposed to show, how do you get to court? How do you even know when your appointment is? Most likely they don't have phones or, you know, uh, all these resource clothes, place to shower and get, and get oh. ready. But even knowing when their appointments are like, cause when right. you and this is all, this is all going to have to be figured out as it gets implemented. And, you know, the governor put $65 million in his budget for a new civil court system. And presumably some of that court system may involve outreach from the court 
to people to get them into the court. For me, it feels we've never prioritized this population for services. So it just seems so odd that we're spending $65 million on judges and lawyers and court personnel instead of spending the money on housing and voluntary services. And if, you, if, if it's true that there's really seven to 12,000 people that are the target population, it seems like we could have spent the money much better to really serve that population without involving lots of judges and lawyers unnecessarily. Uh, the opponents of this say that it's very discriminatory, that it- Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's not complicated. I think part of the concern is that the court system, civil court or criminal court, has not done a good job of serving people from racial and ethnic minority communities in a way that works for them. We, we have a carceral system in California that disproportionately locks up black and brown people. We have lots of racism throughout our, our systems. We have structural racism that plays out in Los Angeles and Sacramento and San Francisco and across our state. All of these things combine with a new tool to get people that are having behavioral crises off the streets can lead to uh, people experiencing disproportionate negative impact based on their race. So it's it's uh, it is part of it is this concept that you're going to find people with schizophrenia. There is good data that shows that Black people are more likely to get diagnosed with schizophrenia. So if that becomes a, just another way to get Black people off the streets by you know giving them a schizophrenia diagnosis, it's it's concerning. Um, you know, I think the NAACP opposed care court, pretty much every major homeless advocacy organization opposed it. I just don't understand why the governor of a progressive state would do something big like this. I mean, this is like his signature initiative. This is what he talked about when he went to Washington, D.C. for the National Governors Association meeting. I don't understand why he would do this over the opposition of all of the progressive voices in the state that are trying to improve the lives of unhoused people. Um, you know, there's there's kind of three different ecosystems that aligned against Care Corps. There was the mental health peer movement and a lot of mental health service providers. There was the disability rights, civil rights, civil liberties movement. And then there was, uh, you know, basically the counties that we're saying you're gonna you're gonna saddle us with all these services and housing requirements, and you're not gonna give us the money to do it. So is this a done deal? Or now that the ACLU has filed the lawsuit, but, and all of you object to this or have have concerns, is this a done deal, or can it be? No, I, I think it'll it'll be challenged in the courts. It, it is being challenged in the courts. I think it's going to be very difficult to implement. I think when they try to implement it, they're going to learn a lot of the challenges that start to, you know, the, the model is going to start to be tested by reality. <laughs> and, and my hope is that the governor, if he gets reelected to a second term tomorrow, which it looks like he will, and Secretary Galley, if he, if he decides to stick around, that they're going to realize that their idea is not working and they're going to have to come up with some mid-course corrections. And I hope and instead of just sitting down with big city mayors to figure out what to do, they'll actually talk to people who are closer to the pain 
and try to come up with solutions that actually might work. Do you meet with the governor? Are you involved in any of these meetings? Yeah, we've we've met repeatedly with the Secretary of Health and Human Services, other than the press conference at the very beginning. The governor pretty much stayed away from anybody that was opposed to CareCorp. The only people he met with were the people who agreed with him. Is it the ACLU who files the lawsuit or do all your organizations file lawsuits? No, my, we had a broad coalition and I'm sure as lawsuits get filed, there will be amicus briefs where the broad coalition's voices are heard. My guess is in terms of actual litigation, it probably won't be more than two or three cases. I, I can't imagine there's going to be hundreds of cases filed, but we'll see. So much discussion the last year and a half watching Britney Spears on TV and her ordeal trying to get out of it. So if these homeless people are put into a conservative ship, do they have any chance? What are their chances of ever getting out of it? Or is it kind of a done deal or? I mean, it sounds like the, you're really way, of your rights. Yeah, the way the conservatorship system in California has been set up and existed for years, it's relatively easy to be conserved it's not easy to get out of a conservatorship. And certainly the Britney Spears example is an example of somebody with lots of resources who had a hard time getting out of the conservatorship. Um, we worked on a bill in California as a nonprofit. This is different than Washington, D.C. The nonprofit can actually sponsor a bill. In D.C., the sponsors of a bill are the actual elected officials. In California, the elected officials are the authors of the bill but the nonprofits are the sponsors. So we sponsored a bill to reform conservatorship in California that was passed and signed into law by Governor Newsom. So at the same time he was doing care court, he signed a law that, that would make it easier for people to get out of conservatorships. And it would also make it easier to get a more limited conservatorship. Like sometimes you may need help managing your money, but that doesn't mean that you need somebody to decide whether you should get married to this person or any number of other things that you want to do as an adult. And I think one of the basic concepts of the disability rights movement is that disabled people should have the same right to make bad choices as non-disabled people. Like <laughs> people marry the, they marry the wrong person all the time. They, they buy the wrong house. They, they, you know, we make mistakes as adults. And sometimes systems get set up so that disabled people aren't allowed to make those mistakes because somehow it's cruel to let the disabled person make that mistake. And the paternalism that, get, that is involved in taking away those rights from adults with disabilities is very dangerous. So my hope is that over time, we're not going to use conservatorships as much for autistic people, for people with mental health disabilities, for old people. And instead, we're going to offer them supported decision-making where we give them a person who they choose who can help them make decisions that are the decisions that they want to make, even if somebody else might consider it a bad decision. So you've been in the trenches. Any any thoughts? I mean, I guess I had an opportunity to speak at a, a statewide event that was focused on aging. And the panel I was on was like the state of aging in California. So I tried to come up with one sentence that would describe the state of aging in California. And I said, we're rich, we're on fire, and we're way too comfortable with inequality. Mm -hmm. And I do think that that's true around the homeless issue as well. 
we're an incredibly wealthy state. We're overflowing with resources, certainly compared to other states, compared to other countries. This is an incredibly wealthy state. We 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 are on fire. You know, we've we've got serious problems with wildfires and, and global warming, climate change, whatever you want to call it. And we have these super wealthy people living alongside people who literally have no place to sleep other than the street. And we somehow seem to think, well, that's just the way it is, you know. And the, from my perspective, there's something fundamentally immoral about the fact that we're okay with some people making a gazillion dollars during the pandemic doing absolutely nothing and many people being forced into homelessness or into a project room key as a short-term band-aid solution to homelessness so i feel like we have to have a fundamental realignment in california about are, are we progressive do we understand what that means what that word means and what are we willing to do to create more equality so that people like my 29-year-old son have some hope that they could buy a place to live in Los Angeles during their lifetime and have some kind of a middle-class existence? I mean, that was possible when I was growing up. I grew up in Los Angeles in the 70s. People were able to buy a place to live in Los Angeles in the 70s. And the the, the swath of the population that can actually do that keeps getting narrower and narrower. And that's a political issue. We have to decide as a state, is that a problem? Is the fact that so much wealth is tied up in people's home ownership and the generational impact of that, is it a problem? You know, And I feel like a lot of democratic politicians in California are afraid to frame it in moral terms and say, that's immoral. I feel like Governor Newsom, he really wants to be a progressive governor, but he doesn't really want to upset rich people. And I feel like we, we either have to convince rich people that it's in their interest to share their wealth, which I think is possible, or we have to upset them or a little bit of both. But we just don't seem to be very motivated to do something about inequality. And to me, housing is the worst form of inequality in our state, and it seems to only get worse over time. You know, my wife, works at a Presbyterian church here in Sacramento and they do a respite where homeless people come and spend time once a week there charging their phones, getting, you know, equipment that they need and just having kind of a place to have a snack. And and my wife has had an opportunity now to talk to a number of homeless people in Sacramento, some of whom come every week, some of whom come in and out of the program. But I feel like one of the things we have to do as a state is create more opportunities like that for people who are unhoused to actually build relationships with people who are housed so that people can start to see the unhoused people as actual people with histories and ideas and preferences and, you know, kind of signs of, uh, you know, humanity and not just see them as like zombies roaming the streets. And I feel like we're we're very quick to dehumanize the homeless people that we encounter in our day-to-day -day lives. And again, I mean, I, I really do see it as a moral issue. You know, I, I'm not, when I say moral, I don't mean a particular religion. I just think, you know, it's just wrong in a, in a country as wealthy as the United States and a state as wealthy as California 
for us to have so many people who have no place to sleep. Do you, is there any current legislation that you're aware of that's addressing like the building more, more, more beds and more facilities, more, more low income, the tiny house community? You know, I, I think there are models out there. I, you know, I'm intrigued by Houston. You know, Houston decided that they needed to do something serious about their homeless problem. And they had a multi-sector strategy that included government at all levels of government. It included, you know, the nonprofit service delivery sector. It included the business community. The business community played a big role. And they put a lot of coordinated effort into reducing the homeless population. And they had a big impact. Whether that solution would work in San Francisco or Los Angeles or San Diego or Sacramento, I don't know. But I, that multi-sector approach to me is exciting and interesting. And I don't think this is something that government can solve by itself. Let's just touch on a little bit of your experience. I, I mean, we we kind of mentioned it at the beginning of the interview. You were diagnosed with bipolar your last year of law school. So yeah, I was a I was a visiting student at Harvard Law School. My I got married the summer between my second and third year of law school. So my wife had started a PhD program at Boston University, and I had local government law with President Obama. He was he was a student there. Oh my god! And he was the the editor of the Law Review, the first black editor of the Harvard Law Review. So he was already kind of a big deal, um, and I kind of went from being very cocky, talking a lot in class, kind of obnoxious, to having no self-esteem and not no energy and didn't want to get out of bed. And it was very quick. Uh, and I remember just kind of wandering around Boston, hoping that a car would run over me. You know, I just, I felt, I felt like I had no value and no motivation. And there was no precipitous event, like nobody in your family died, no. or, you know, nothing no, like I think, that. I think, you know, the precipitous event was the winter in Boston. You know, I, oh. I, went, I, went, <laughs> I went from, you know, being at Stanford, surrounded by beautiful hills and beautiful weather, to this horrible winter in Boston. And I think the winter itself was the precipitous event for me. But... Um, but it wasn't my first time experiencing winter. I went to college in Connecticut. I had bad winters for four years in college, and that, that didn't send me into the same kind of depression. At that point, I was on a conveyor belt, right? And I think my wife helped me stay on the conveyor belt. And I got through law school. I graduated, finished my coursework, and I had lined up a job at Cambridge and Somerville Legal Services the summer after I graduated. And they put me in SSI advocacy. I was advocating for people that were trying to be eligible for federal disability benefits. And that was kind of my introduction to the world of disability. And I learned about a Supreme Court decision that made it easier for children to qualify for SSI. So I applied for a fellowship to implement that decision in Massachusetts, got the fellowship, and went to work for the Disability Law Center, which is similar to Disability Rights California. It's the federally funded protection and advocacy agency in Massachusetts. And then I was surrounded by people in Massachusetts who were lawyers with visible and non-visible disabilities. And they strongly encouraged me to be out and open with my disability. So I started being open about the bipolar disorder and I have been for the rest of my career. When I was in Boston, I found what I really liked doing was policy work more than individual client representation. 
And then I ended up kind of falling into a job in Washington with Senator Harkin. Uh, he was the chair of the, the subcommittee on disability policy. So I got a job there in 93. And then I stayed in Washington until 2020 when I came home to California. I haven't spent any time in politics, but were there was it an uphill battle drafting legislation or was there a lot of support in Congress or is it a, a constant fight to get funding and things like this or not so much? Well, it's funny. My, my, my father did not graduate from college and he was an entrepreneur. And what I saw my father do throughout my childhood was build community and connect people with each other. So I feel like I've done that in the disability world and in the policy world. I'm constantly meeting new people, connecting them with each other, trying to help people. And it's worked well for me. Like I learned early in my time in Washington, when you're a Democrat, when you're a liberal Democrat, like I am, and you're a Tom Harkin Democrat, he was a liberal Democrat from Iowa, your relationship with Republicans are the relationships that are going to matter the most. Because if you have good relationships with Republicans and you can work with them on stuff, then you can do anything. So I spent 26 years cultivating Republicans. I probably had the best relationships with Republicans of anybody that was a liberal Democrat <laughs> in, in Washington. But part of it is because I genuinely enjoyed Republicans. When, when I teach people how to do lobbying, I tell them your ability to influence another person depends on how they feel about themselves when they're with you. So if you want to influence a Republican or a Republican staffer, you need to genuinely make them feel good about themselves. And I, I'm very capable of doing that. You, In my experience, you have to compartmentalize. A Republican is never going to be good on every issue that you care about if you're a liberal Democrat. So you have to forgive them on the stuff that they're not good at or good on and work with them on the stuff that they are good on. So I was always able to do that. So I ended up having a lot of success doing policy work, usually with creative coalitions. I was always the one behind enemy lines. And how is it here? You have a pretty good team? I miss the Republicans. There's no <laughs> Republicans to work with in California, but it's so heavily Democrat. But uh, no, it's good. I, I really like my team. Um, what are your current goals like for this year or well we're starting it will be in a 2023 soon so i would say two big ones um we had a bill that made it all the way to the governor's desk that he didn't sign so we want to come back and get him to sign that bill and it would basically outlaw solitary confinement for young people for disabled people and for old people and we think it's doable there's a law like that in new york state we think it kind of defines what a progressive approach to solitary confinement would be. And we're hoping that Governor Newsom will ultimately sign the bill when it gets back to his desk. The person that we worked with on it, Assemblymember Holden, was great to work with. We had a great coalition, and we're really optimistic that that will, will happen in the next, next legislative session. Um, and then the other one is a much longer term thing, but it's the kind of thing I like to do. We, we want to rewrite a civil rights law for people with disabilities for, you know, 2023. And we want to call it like the Californians with Disabilities Act. But basically, we want to have the best state law in the country that defines civil rights. So right now, there's a lot of gray area under the ADA for things like the, the application to the internet, or the application to ride sharing companies. There's a lot of things that didn't exist in 1990 when the ADA was passed. 
that are huge parts of people's lives today. And there were a lot of compromises that they had to make to get the ADA passed that we don't feel like we would have to make the same compromises in 2023. So we want to work with a broad coalition to write a modern civil rights law for people with disabilities and then, you know, use it as an organizing tool and try to get California to pass it. We feel like it's a great way to educate the legislature on all the ways that disabled people are still second-class citizens in California. So we see a lot of value in working on that bill, even if it doesn't. Um, can you give me some examples of like how they're treated like second class? Sure. Like, you know, they, they cut deals. You know, Amtrak is not a big, a de- is not as big a deal in California as it is on the East Coast, but they cut deals around transportation where Amtrak doesn't have to make stations accessible until 2050 or like the New York subway system doesn't have to become wheelchair accessible for a hundred years or something like these kinds of compromises just make no sense in the modern era. So the basic concept is disabled people should have the same access to goods and services that have, you know, public support as everyone else. And, you know, it could be that, you know, somebody who's deaf, who's going to college, should have better access to sign language interpreters interpreting the class and and those interpreters being well-trained to be able to do the interpretation so that they're getting the equivalent access as somebody who's in the classroom and can hear. Um, There's just a lot of ways in which disabled people don't have the same access that other people take for granted. Even in government, you know, we, we had all this online government during the pandemic if you were deaf or blind, you did not have the same access to the online government as other other people because the government didn't proactively provide accessibility when they did remote government. Uh, oh, like you mean if you had okay court online? Oh, things yeah, things that most people would not even think about if it's not affecting you. You know, and a lot of people think, oh, well, we have the Americans with Disabilities Act, so that's all taken care of. Well, no. The ADA was a compromise. It was what we could pass in 1990. So that's really the interesting thing to me. What could we pass in 2023 or 2024? And I'm intrigued to just work. What could the average person do, like other than voting? Or is there any way like... I, I, I I think one of the most important things we can do is normalize the concept of mental illness or any chronic health condition. When I when I was dealing with my new diagnosis of bipolar disorder and I was working in a disability rights organization, I learned the idea that's written into a lot of these federal laws, the idea that disability is a natural part of the human experience and that your lived experience with a disability should not prevent you from making choices, having a meaningful career, or doing other things that most adults take for granted. And I I think for parents that have a child that may be struggling with a new mental health diagnosis, I don't think they get exposed to the idea that mental illness is a natural part of the human experience. I think what they hear from so many people is that this is not natural, this is abnormal, It's, it's a disorder, and you need to like find a pharmaceutical solution or some other solution to knock out the disorder. And there doesn't seem to be much of a real conversation about 
is it is the problem the disorder or is the problem the way society reacts to the disorder and in the disability rights movement the social model of disability says let's stop pathologizing disability and start pathologizing discrimination when bad things happen to disabled people it's not necessarily because of the disability it could be because of everybody around them and the fact that they you know haven't created a world have we invested in the science to, so that we would understand how to have interventions with your brother that would work for your brother and help your brother accomplish whatever he wants to accomplish in his life when, when i give advice to people with bipolar disorder i always start by asking them what are their goals mm -hmm. do you want to get married do you want to have children do you want to have a job do you want to go to fancy restaurants like what what are the things that you want to do and then I try to basically help them have a conversation with themselves. Okay, if you want those things, what are the things you're going to have to learn how to manage in order to achieve those goals? And I think if you can get somebody to have that conversation with themselves, sometimes it gives them insight that help gives them a motivation to deal with things that they have to, where it's not like a physician telling them they have to do it. But it's them telling themselves, yeah, I need to deal with that if I want to achieve. Well, Andy, I, I can't thank you enough, you know, for, for taking the time. I know you're very busy. Thank you for talking about CARES Act and a little yeah. bit about your story. Yeah. And I hope that we get a chance to chat again, maybe in person, um, or maybe we're covering another topic. But if I can help you in any way, like if the show gets picked up and we're out, I'd, I'd love to do that because I you know, pretty stellar rock star person, as far as I'm concerned, from everything I could see about you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it's great to meet you and I look forward to the next one. Thanks, everybody, for joining us for another episode of American Mood Swings, where we talk about the brain and all things mental health. Hope to see you next week and please share with your friends. 